No Directions Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage is brought to you by Roll for Combat's new Fall of Plaguestone Pathfinder 2e actual play podcast. Featuring Stephen Glicker, Jason McDonald, Rob Tremarco, and No Directions own Lauren Sig and Vanessa Hoskins. Find it and other Pathfinder and Starfinder podcasts, interviews, and reviews at RollForCombat.com. No Direction presents our Gen Con 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. We'd like to thank our seminar team, Lauren Sieg, James Ballad, Vanessa Hoskins, and me, Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param. We'd also like to thank Peyton Smith from Paizo for helping getting this produced. This content and more great seminar coverage, as well as Pathfinder and Starfinder content, is available at NoDirectionPodcast.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Dungeon Design Dissection. I hope that's all what you were here for. If not, welcome anyway. Um, my name is Linda Zayas Palmer, and I am a developer on the Organized Play team. So I have worked a lot with, in particular, Pathfinder Society scenarios and the design that goes into those, as well as my experience as a GM. Uh, and I'm Ron Lundeen. I'm a developer on the, primarily for the Pathfinder Adventure Path, so a lot of deep uh, adventure experience. And I'm Jason Tondro. I am a Starfinder developer on Adventure Paths. I'm also the author of Starfinder 18 and Pathfinder 151, which I wrote for you, and, uh, and another Starfinder adventure that has not been announced yet. So. All right, so where do we want to get started off? So when you're talking about designing a dungeon, the first thing to think about is, well, what is this dungeon going to be for? Who is going to be living in this dungeon? And how are they going to be interacting with each other? Because if you're going to have a dungeon where you're going to have a lot of different creatures that are in the dungeon and you don't necessarily want them all to be combining into the same giant encounter, then you're going to need space to be between them. And also, when you have a dungeon, I mean, unless, unless, you, unless you're having undead, mindless undead constructs and something like that, like living creatures, they don't just sit in a room all day and wait for adventurers to come and kill them, right? They have a life where they move around. They're going to have places where they eat. They have dreams. They have dreams. (laughs) They have hopes. They're going to have places where they eat. They're going to have places where they sleep. They're going to have places where they hang out. They're going to have places where they stand and guard. They're going to have all these other things that they're doing. So on a fundamental level, when I'm looking at the design of a dungeon, I'm looking at who is there, what are they doing while they're there, and what is that? What is the function that that space is serving? Okay. From a uh, um, one thing to keep in mind with any dungeon, it is it, it's fundamentally being written, being presented for two audiences. The first mm-hmm. is the the reader who is who ought to be the game master, um, <laughs> <coughs> rather than the player. Um, but it's also it's also being presented for the player experience. And I've uh, I, I've, I've held that there are actually three phases in which a player experiences a dungeon. Um, and I used to be able to talk about these sort of in the very much in the abstract, right? There's the, there's the initial phase where you're, the players aren't quite sure what the scope of the dungeon is. They're, they know what they're there to do, but they don't have any idea how big it is or what sort of threats they're going to be facing, except in the first you know few rooms. And the second phase, uh, which is about... The, the players kind of having sense of the whole scope of the dungeon, how big it is, what the themes of the stuff that are there are, but they haven't finished it, right? They haven't, they haven't, they haven't 
found the whoever whatever it is they're there to get or the the monster that they're ultimate boss monster they're there to defeat and then the third monster pivots once they do recover the MacGuffin they were there to get or defeated the boss they were there to get that's kind of the cleanup okay i haven't been to every single room but this is where they go everything they said throughout the dungeon oh we'll go back and get that this is where they go back and get that the players at this point feel like they've got a lot of mastery of the dungeon mm -hmm. and it's also the place where the GM is most likely to kind of hand wave, right? Okay, sure, the treasure is hidden behind a secret panel with sort of a low difficulty uh, uh, lock or trap on it. It's a place where a GM's like, I, I, you find it. You find it right down, you know, 450 GP or whatever. Um, those three phases have, have a specific arc of player ignorance to confidence to mastery and that is an excellent arc for the players to feel like they're like they're they're winning something regardless of how the dice are going um I, so i've been able to talk about this in in the abstract for the longest time but i can give you a very specific example uh with only slight spoilers for one of the starfinder adventure paths <laughs> adventures because I'm, I'm playing it and we we found this derelict spaceship and we had no idea who was on it. They weren't responding to any of our hails. So we got on the derelict spaceship. We got a couple of rooms in, and there was like this, this weird creature that obviously wasn't part of the original crew that sort of tricked us into thinking maybe it was, but we saw through that ruse. And then some of the people on the ship that had been, we found some bodies of people that had been killed. Right? I mean, is this Dead Sons? It is Dead Sons. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, all right. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so we got through a couple of the rooms, and then we, we stopped for the evening. And I'm like, and, I, and then I realized, what? This, is, this is phase one. I, I'm in phase one of this dungeon as a player that I've been talking about. And the next session, which was much shorter, we managed to get all the way through to the other end of the ship. So at that point, we could see on the map, like, okay, we know the ship is this big. We know that the mm -hmm. people that were in it are, are dead and we know why, except we know that there's one person who sort of holed up on the bridge that we can't yet get to. And end of the session. I'm like, and this is phase two. Right? I'm living this, right? Um, and so when, once we get back, we, we know now how to get into the bridge. We know who that we're going to face in the bridge. Mm -hmm. We know there are a couple of rooms that we're not going to get. We're going we're gonna to do what we need to do to get there. And there's going to be a couple of rooms that I fully expect our GM to be like, now that you've you know, conquered the person on the bridge, yeah, yeah, you explore the rest of the ship. I, at least I hope that's the case because I've already been insisting that this is that this is my ship now and that I'm going to be the captain of the ship. <laughs> the rest of the players maybe don't agree. But. Are you sure you're not going to spend an entire section like searching, un searching inside of the brig and like seeing if anybody hid something under their mattress or that anything would like be, that? I would like. I would prefer to have that sort of show up organically. That would be that would be the most exciting for me. Like. Four adventures in for the GM to be like, oh, and plus there's this thing under the under the mattress, under the mattress that you never yeah. knew was there. <gasps> anyway, so that's a, that's a, the three phases to keep in mind: the feelings they have on players, and the and the the fact that I'm feeling them. So, who here is interested in writing adventures, and who here is mostly here for DMing or running running adventures dungeons in their home group? In their home group, okay. So, mostly the second, but quite a few of the former. Um, one of the things that I've really been interested in lately, uh, that I've been thinking about a lot lately, is, is the replayability of dungeons and, and the, the possibility of creating a dungeon in which there are multiple paths through it so that when 
when two different groups or gamers from two different groups meet up at their local game store and they compare their experience to White Plume Mountain or whatever, their stories are completely different, right? Which is sort of the, the, the holy grail for me, right? Um, but that's only important if you're writing the adventure because if it's just for your home group, they're only going to run through it once probably, right? I mean, there are rare exceptions, of course, which prove the rule, but... So you don't have to make a, a, a dungeon with replayability because your players aren't going to want to replay it, right? So you, and I was interested by your observation about these sort of three levels because as the players increase in mastery, the suspension or tension of the dungeon decreases. And it becomes, in many ways, less interesting okay. as the players master it, right? And so you have to fill that gap in, 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 in suspense with other things. Like, oh, that's the boss that we're here to get, right? And the boss's personality becomes more interesting than the dungeon, mm -hmm. which is the initial source of tension, right? Um, there's a long-standing sort of trope when we talk about dungeons, that dungeons are kind of like a, 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 um, a flowchart in D&D, right? You either go left and you fight the ogre, or you go right and you fight the orcs, right? And your goal is to get all the way down to the bottom of the flowchart where the MacGuffin is. And, and the, the, this is a... Can you represent, just because I, I don't know if that's a familiar term to everybody. Do we know what a MacGuffin is? MacGuffin it's a Hitchcock is. term, the thing all the spies are after. It's from Hitchcock's movies? Okay. Um, and, and, and this is a very mechanical and in many ways very sterile way of looking at dungeons, but, but all the fun stuff comes later. Like we don't, let's, let's just think of the dungeon as like a spreadsheet or something. Talk about it as most basic mechanical functions. And then at every one of those turns in the flowchart, your players have to expend resources, right? And then where is their opportunities to regain resources? And so it can get, it can get very mechanical. And when I was early in my dungeon writing career, I spent a lot of time sweating that stuff. Like, okay, am I giving them enough treasure to get them to the end of the flow chart? Are they getting enough XP to level at the right moments? But I think, how many people here use some sort of milestone advancement? Almost every, look around, <laughs> almost everyone. More hands, more! And, and, and we're, we encourage that, <clears throat> but at the same time I know that also as developers, we also go back through it and we do all the math to make sure that the characters advance at the right times, even as we're hoping all of you raise your hands to the milestone question, right? So when you get to this important moment, everybody levels, and we don't worry about the flow chart so much, you know? I don't have a lot of answers here. I'm just trying to sort of talk about the things I've been thinking about lately. Do we have anybody here who's played either The One Ring or Adventures in Middle Earth? Oh, you, you are missing out. Oh, <laughs> we work for Paizo. I, 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 I talk. You play other games. I know you do. That, that's true. The, thing, the reason why I bring it up is because um, in... in those games and, and in the model of epic fantasy which those games model, the big dungeon is a rarity, right? I mean, you've got Moria as the classic archetypal dungeon crawl, but most of the time it's all about the journey. And this has become very interesting because in those games, the journey replaces the flowchart. The journey is the flowchart. So the players don't get to rest while they're traveling. Unless you're in a very safe place, unless you're in Rivendell or Lothlorien, you don't get a long rest. 
You don't get to refill your spell slots. You don't get hit points back. The journey is the flowchart. And then at the very end, there's like one or two encounters with the boss in a, in a dungeon, a little tiny mini dungeon, right? So there's a lot of ways to do this, a lot of create, creative solutions to this, which can be very interesting. And like I said, I don't really have any answers here. I'm just sort of talking about the things that have been on my mind lately. We take questions? Yeah, well, I have a, I have yeah, a thought I on what you were saying yeah, there yeah. In, terms of, uh, in terms of both um, get the player feeling like they completely master the dungeon mm -hmm. and then maybe wanting to ways to have interest in the dungeon after that point. Yeah. And also in terms of trying to have a good sense of when people are going to level up. Um, there are certain things that create natural transitions in dungeons that are going to encourage people to rest, such mm. as the long winding staircase leading down yes. into the into that other area. When there's a, a strong change in the description of what the area looks like, say mm. you're dealing with the the base that's on the upper level, but then you you find the passageway to go into the secret cultist chambers that are in the ancient <laughs> temple below or these caverns that lead down slightly into the dark lands, but then you have these other things going on. Those sorts of things can both signal to your players, okay, this is, a, this is probably gonna be a good time to rest before we see what that has in store. Mm -hmm. So you can use that as a, as a catch up point if you are using um, XP to say, okay, they've probably explored this, they're probably this level. And also to, to show them, well, we knew it was going on up here, but we don't know what's going on down here. So you can, you can restart yeah. that cycle. And, tr and treasure is another great way of re-adding that suspense and, and, and uh, uh, tension that disappears as the dungeon is explored because you give them these cool new things that they don't know how to use, right? So now they have to come up with new levels of mastery to learn how to use the fancy new widget that you gave them, right? And that replace, like we know the dungeon, but how does this staff work, right? And can I figure out how to use it in time to fight the, fight the big bad at the end? I have, I have, I have a specific example with, with each of these that I think is helpful. One of, one of my favorite rest point techniques in a dungeon yeah. is to have the PCs find a uh, a room or area that it is clear to them that nobody else in the dungeon knows is there. Yeah, right? it may as well have a sign on it that says "Hidden, long rest hidden here. Vault." Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> hidden vault or whatever. Yeah. And they they without being told specifically, the you know the the hobgoblins that are otherwise in this area don't know about this old secret vault. Um, this is a safe place to rest. That makes them. It goes back to the making the PCs feel feel clever. Right? The players feel smart when they're like, "Wait a minute, this place is covered in dust. Nobody's been here." Can probably rest here. You're sort of <laughs> nodding. Um, the um, so that's one of the one of the techniques that I like to use. Um, you'd mentioned finding treasure in order to build the suspense, finding treasure but not knowing what it does. Yeah. One of the things that I think can be used with good effect in that regard yeah. is introduce mid dungeon something of a little bit of scavenger hunt. Mm. You mentioned a staff. Well, here's a staff that plainly has like a housing and a crystal on it that are both yes. gone. So okay, now we're now as we find these, as we yeah. gain, gain greater mastery of the dungeon, we're also doing this other thing. Yeah. Once we get it together, the staff's going to do something. Well, we don't know, right? And and the the idea of the collector set can be mm -hmm. can be a great way to get players m motivated to explore the dungeon. And it's also a clear and easy goal. Like, okay, we found this these two things. They seem to be related. Maybe there's more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, one that I forget what adventure it was, but I remember an adventure where we found 
one uh, one boot of speed, and we knew we needed to somewhere find <laughs> the other boot. And it went, and so it was like, okay, well, wherever they went, wherever our foes went after they were here, that's probably where that other missing shoe is. I am stealing the boot of speed. I am totally stealing that. That's can I, brilliant. Can I can I just plug real quickly a second edition adventure available as of yesterday? I wrote called the Horseshoe Calamity yeah. about this mixed tribe of humans and centaurs where they found one horseshoe of flight, and the <laughs> centaurs think the humans have the other ones. They sort of lost access to it, and finding the other three. In fact, it's a scavenger hunt by the other yeah, three yeah, magic. Yeah. Horseshoes that the centaurs really want. So there you go. Natural sets. The players know there's got to be more here. That's right. But that that actually does. That actually gives one of the good motivations to explore a dungeon. One of the concerns in a particularly large dungeon area, whether that dungeon is a classic room of you know flagstone corridors and you know dripping slime and things like that, (laughs) or whether it is an abandoned hospital, or whether it is a spaceship, or whether it's any sort of discrete collection of areas. It's really fundamentally what a dungeon is. It's sort of a sort of an area bounded by don't go past here, right? Um, the though if you want to make sure that your players are getting something of a fuller exploration of it, one of the you know, what a, one of the effective but but perhaps heavy-handed ways is to just make mostly one way through it. You want to have some decisions for the for the players. Don't the players be making choices. But if the whole thing is basically a line with a few rooms, it's not very interesting, but you know full well the players are going to start here and they're going to go through all this stuff until they get here. And other ways to encourage the players to do more exploration, to hit more of the encounters that you've so carefully crafted in there, uh, are to make something like, here's, here's a, a collector set, either for mm-hmm. treasure they have or something they must get before they're able to face the final boss, um, things that they're otherwise... Otherwise, incent- uh, that otherwise incentivize them to to go through. If the MacGuffin, if they're trying to rescue a prisoner, maybe they're trying to rescue three prisoners that are in different locations. So, um, things that sort of propel the players to go through, um, other than in a straight line, is something to think about when you're in the uh, when you're in the uh, dungeon design. Uh, mode. Knowledge can be very powerful too, whether that's information about how to defeat this particular bosses at the end or information about their plans or things like that so that the PCs know that they're preparing for a particular situation. So, or if they're trying to stop someone from running off with information and they know that if they just go to the end and they and they confront the boss, then the lackeys are going to run off and you're going to have all these other threats that are still out there for you. So you notice that in every one of us at some point has talked about a boss at the end, and I want to address that, not because there needs to be a boss, but I think what the dun- because the dungeon is a map and the players can go around it in a lot of different ways, it can often end in a very anticlimactic fashion. Like, okay, well, that was the last room. I guess we leave, right? And so the question is, how do we ensure that the final session of the dungeon has a lot of good energy and the players feel like they accomplished something significant? And the shorthand way to do that is an evil wizard with minions, right? Or whatever, like whatever your big boss of choice is. But I think that there are other ways to do that, like saving your coolest geography and landscape, for example, for the, for the very end. Like create some uh, fantastic location Uh, Or the source of the dungeon, whatever the dungeon is, why is it here and why was it made? Give Give the players knowledge that they would not otherwise be able to get. And that sort of thing can make even a faceless horde of orcs to be interesting. 
if if when they did when the players overcome those orcs they they knew that what they were doing was the keystone moment of the dungeon does that make sense and then i have a couple of other quick points i just wanted to note um remember that you're if if you most of you are making an adventure for your players at at home make the adventure for your players right this is this, sometimes we, can, we have so much fun making dungeons and making worlds, and there is a lot of creative, artistic spirit that goes into that. And, I, and anybody who thinks that making dungeons is not an art can fight me. But, <laughs> but at the same time, put stuff in there that you know your players are going to respond to, right? It, they're the audience. They, they are the target. The only reason why there's a bunch of evil spiders in The Hobbit is because Tolkien's youngest child was afraid of spiders. Now, I'm not telling you all to prey on your players' arachnophobia. I'm not... Don't do that. I, I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point is, is that figure out what the stuff that your players find is cool. And I think we would all agree, you cannot predict what your players are going to find cool. You have to just pit, throw a lot of stuff at them, keep your ear open... And when the players start responding to that one cool NPC or that one cool monster or that one cool room or that thing that you grab onto it, ignore the other hooks that you left for them and follow that one like you're a dog on a bone, right? Mm -hmm. and, and give the players what they want. And then the, the last thing that I wanted to note is, it, it, or rather to, to ask everyone at the, at the table, how, how do we deal with NPCs in the dungeon, right? Because okay. the, the old version of this, the, if, if you're in the old school grognard version, like NPCs always betray you, so kill them the minute you see them, right? Because there is no, any NPC you meet is a thief with backstab. Just get, get to the point now. That's not how we do it anymore. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, so like what, what are the roles and how do you use NPCs in the dungeon? in ways other than, obviously, just a bucket of XP and treasure. Yeah, certainly. So um, a lot of the adventures I work on are for organized play, which means that I know mm. that they are going to see lots and lots of replayability. They're going, to have to, mm. they're going to have to cater to players with a wide variety of styles. So with dungeons in general, I like to see that there are opportunities to fight things, but there are also opportunities to use your skills. There are opportunities mm. to be more social when you do things. When presenting NPCs, Unless they are someone like, this is the fanatical cultist of Lamashtu who will fight to the death against anyone who possibly intrudes on her lair, the NPC is probably going to have their own motivations. And by presenting those motivations to, if you're writing the adventure, by presenting those to the GMs, or if you're jamming the adventure, by thinking about what is it that this NPC really wants, right? I mean, first of all, most people like to live so, like, can they be convinced to stop fighting? Is there something else that they want more? Do they want money? Do they want power? Would they be willing to betray their own allies in order to get some additional advantage? Where do their allegiances lie? Is everybody actually all working together in the dungeon that mm. you've got? So, yeah, I would say considering the motivations of each one, and that doesn't mean that you need to write backstories for every NPC that appears in it. Particularly, you know, if they're if there's someone that you expect the PCs to fight, but it's a good idea to have a to have a list of names on hand because so that if generic guard parentheses three one of them the PCs decide to have a long conversation with, you can just be like, oh yes, um, yes, this is a guard and his name is totally not uh, 
Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, one of one of the things that I like to keep in mind. This goes back to something Linda was saying earlier. Um, is to keep in mind that these you're you're trying to add some verisimilitude to the to the inhabitants of your dungeon. On from a from a very sort of you know twenty thousand foot view, your your players are the good guys and these are the bad guys. They're they're bad. So it's not it's not at all unreasonable to think that among any dungeon filled with orcs or ogres or whatever, that some of them are gonna want to betray the others. And think about this. So if you've got an old I mean, you've got an old abandoned academy, right? That's chock full of vampires. I mean, you're, you're one of the vampires. You've got the vampire boss. You go about the day doing your vampire things, and these these heroes come these heroes come <laughs> these heroes come bursting in the door, and they've got they've got weapons that produce sunlight, and they've got wooden stakes and holy water. This is the point at which you might be thinking, "Oh man, I've totally got to stop these people in order to keep them from getting to my boss." Or you might be thinking, you know that other vampire? I never liked that dude, and I owe him a bunch of money. Maybe this is the time if the the PCs you know do me half my hit points of damage, and I know they're pretty confident. I'll go, wait, 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 wait. Let me let me help you out, guys. Go this way. Take care of that person for me, right? That's a, that's that's how you can turn sort of a monster encounter into an NPC encounter. Now I know that most players worth their salt will probably do do just that and then come back and take care of the vampire. That yeah. So he should run. <laughs> which which is which is probably fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I like sort of the the nested expectations where you've got in the dungeon you've got a prisoner. Yeah. Okay, a prisoner can give some good information. Uh, but maybe you've got a prisoner that's sort of you've got you've got some sort of evil creature that's masquerading as a prisoner. All right, players have seen that before. But if you've got an evil creature that needs some sort of help Mas- that's masquerading as a prisoner that the players find. Then it's a matter of how deep they go, right? It's like, oh, here's a prisoner who freed you. Here's my good information. Thank you. Off you go. Or here's a prisoner who freed you. Oh, but we've got, you know, Detect Evil or whatever. We know you're a bad guy, so he fights you. Or we're about to fight you. Like, wait, wait, wait. This other guy. <laughs> anyway, so you can go sort of nest- nested uh, motivations. How, how deep you respond to your players. Like you were saying, how deep... They want to go. One one of the things that you'll see in virtually every Paizo adventure now, whether it's Starfinder or, or Pathfinder, is you'll see a line at the end of an encounter that says, if the PCs convince this person to not fight, award them XP as if they had defeated the monster. Right? I wish we didn't have to say that. <laughs> but we do. Because, and we said we're the default. Right. Yeah. Then in any situation where you've talked your way past a monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I was a big priority for me when I made Starfinder 18, which is Assault on the Crucible, I think it comes out in like a couple of weeks. It didn't make it for the con. But I, I, we created a bunch, and I had a lot of help here from Chris Sims, who was the Starfinder developer on, on the adventure. We created a bunch of factions in what's basically the biggest dungeon. I think it might be the biggest dungeon we've done in a Starfinder AP because there's like one very brief couple of optional encounters on your way, but otherwise the entire AP is just the big base. It's a big base invasion, right? Called, a, called the Crucible, the I Crucible. would guess. Called, I mean, no spoilers, I'm playing it, this. It, <laughs> not just a clever name. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we wanted to avoid uh, burnout, and we wanted to avoid it feeling like a slog, right? So we put a bunch of other things in there. One of which is a countdown. Is anybody playing the, the Dawn of Flame uh, AP? Okay. All right. So, so you know that, that the, I'm, not, I'm not spoiling too much here because this happened pr- pretty early in the first adventure, but there's, there's a, 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 an overall invasion plot line, right? Like Efridi from the Plane of Fire are invading the, 
of packed worlds and anyway. So in the assault on the crucible, that that final that big battle is happening while the players are invading the dungeon. So we created a countdown for the dungeon. So every fight you're in, the countdown goes up, right? And then at the end of the dungeon, you go back to the countdown to see how much damage got inflicted on the burning archipelago while you were fighting orcs, right? And obviously they're not orcs, but you know what I mean. Uh, and so, so we wanted to create energy and suspense and tension to make every, pl make every player group try to decide, do we have to have this fight? Is this a fight that we have to have? Or can we sneak around it to save time, right? But at the same time, you need the loot and the XP and like, well, are we tough enough to fight the big boss at the end because we've been skipping all these encounters? Like, you know, so it becomes a kind of a challenge for that. But the other thing that we did was to create a bunch of factions inside the, the Crucible so that the players have the option, if they can gather information, if they can access the computers or spy on the various NPCs or whatever, and they can decide, okay, exactly what you were talking about. Like there's all these potentials for turning one faction against the other, where if we can get into that room where they build the robots, maybe we can turn on the robot machine, you know, or if we can talk to these void hags, maybe we can, you know. So this creates all kinds of sort of levers that the players can either choose to talk flip. to void hags. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That? <laughs> they won't possibly betray you. That? <laughs> Sounds like not the best idea that people have. Well, so the, um, my point was just that uh, think about this idea of, of multiple factions in your dungeon, especially the bigger it is, so that it has kind of different areas and different zones, each of which is controlled by a different group, and not all of which are necessarily hostile to the PCs immediately, so that the players can interact with them and so that your bard has something to do, right? Uh, to, to talk to the NPCs, and they can learn about them, and maybe they can use that to their advantage somehow. And whether they do or not, that's going to create that, that uh, idea of branching paths inside the dungeon so that there isn't just one way to get through everything. And the players have meaningful choices because that's ultimately the, the, the problem about thinking about dungeons as a flowchart is that those choices do not seem meaningful. It doesn't matter if we fight the orcs and go left or we fight the ogre and turn right if all the point is to get to the bottom, right? Those, those choices aren't meaningful. So let's give them meaningful choices. That's one way to do it. And another thing that can make order matter is the way that the occupants of the dungeon dynamically respond to the invasion mm. in terms of who leaves, who stays in the room that they were already in, who might combine up, who might, who might backstab someone else, who might grab the treasure from this room with them yeah. and go to some safer location, that kind of thing. Because then there's the question of how do we approach... So then how do we approach matters? Because you know that you might be raising the alarm. So are you going to go in the front gate of the keep? Because that may not be the best decision you've ever had. Or are you going to try to sneak in through the sewer entrance? Are you going to try to put up a grappling hook and sneak up through one of the windows? What are you going to do? How are you going to approach? And then the order in which you do things matters. And this is a great opportunity to talk about our prep time for, for dungeons, right? You can spend a lot of time designing the dungeon, and you can spend weeks or months designing the dungeon, and then the players start on it, and you feel like, well, I don't have anything to do now. And now I'm just sort of running them through the dungeon. But in actuality, every time they stop at that point to rest, now you have a week or two weeks or however long before your next game to think about how the dungeon responds to what the players have done. Right? So you can use that time, like, okay, 
more monsters fill in than these rooms. I love, I love your idea about how monsters from one room go steal the treasure from this other room, right? <laughs> like move the dungeon around so that the players maybe even go back a little bit on that mastery of the dungeon <laughs> because they find out that it's changed when they weren't looking. If you can if you can give the players the impression that the world moves when they're not looking at it, you you've won DMing, right? Like you've won the game. Especially if you have the players that always do the same tactic and then someone gets away, so it's like, okay, the wizard always fireballs every room when they go in and then but somebody got away and in the next room it's like, oh huh, it seems like the enemies are resistant to fire. I wonder why that is. I wonder if they got some spells cast to be prepared for what the PCs are doing. So, I mean, it's not really fair to the PCs just to have that come out of nowhere, but sure, you know, if the if there's a reasonable reason why their opponents would have the resources and then be able to prepare for those sorts of tactics that the PCs use, then that also lets it respond to them. Yeah, lean, lean into that. If the players come fight a second group after letting somebody survive, they have those that second group go, that's the, uh, go for that archer, yeah, you know, because the archer. the archer was most effective in the previous fight. Mm -hmm. That makes the player both feel a little nervous and mm -hmm. and feel like they're the ones look I, hey i'm important enough that exactly. these monsters are wanting to target me unfortunately <laughs> yeah they're like watch out for that shield guy he blocks for he's, he's gonna block it for everybody else or things like that they they know what the pcs are going to do and they respond to that and that also encourages the players to shake up their tactics a little bit to to catch the enemies on their toes. And it can be fun to, it can be fun, you know, the, they're resistant to fire or whatever, and then the enemy, for the fireball, and the enemy says, oh, ha ha, like we, we are prepared for you. And then the wizard says, okay, chain lightning, whatever. Like, hey, you didn't do that last time. <laughs> no fair. No fair. Um, do you want to take a few questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. I do a lot of puzzles, and that's where I struggle with puzzle balance yeah. in dungeons. Yeah. Not only with the amount of puzzles, but then also the difficulty of puzzles. Yeah. Yeah. So, comments? Oh, yes, yes. So, um, I, I, am, I am also a big fan of puzzles in dungeons. Um, and I know there are a lot of resources online for finding puzzles. Um, and, and you can take puzzles that are as sort of modern or mundane as you've got, you know, Al and Bill and, you know, and Cyril who, you know, are trying to get these three things into these three houses or they got these three pets, you know, um, uh, Einstein's uh, zebra problem. But the, you can reflavor a lot of puzzles very easily to fit within your world. Um, when you do so, do so intelligently. Nobody in the dungeon is going to put a ridiculously difficult puzzle on a door that has the bathroom on the other side, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I think really that the... Bathroom. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, but as far as the difficulty of the puzzles, one of the things that I think is um, uh, that you should do is make sure that you're providing... You have to worry about too too easy or too hard. And I, and I don't know which one in particular you're worried about, but let me say... if. For something that is too hard, it is good to allow the players of their characters make intelligence, wisdom checks, whatever, in order to give them clues. When you're designing a puzzle, make sure you've got kind of a couple of clues that you can give. They don't necessarily give it away. Um, as far as too easy, that's, that's, that's actually not a problem. Because if you've got 
somebody who, well, I, mean, I, I put a puzzle into an adventure that Paizo did recently, and one of the comments on the forum was, oh, we got to this puzzle, and it was just like this one I knew that somebody in our group had seen, and so we got right past it. And I think the intent was maybe the, was to say, that puzzle was too easy. But I took it as, as actually positive. I'm like, oh, because, because that person, right, even if their character is the dumb barbarian, is like, wait, this is a thing I know. I'm like, how good must that person have felt at the time to see that and go, oh, I, I know it, right? That's, that's, a, that's a win for that's the table. Um, in both cases, though, if, you, if your players hate puzzles, don't include them, right? Because we're coming together to have fun. And um, if we, you know, if, if, if you were going over to, uh, you know, to play this game and in the middle of the game, everybody's got to fill out tax forms, right? Because you're, you know, you're, <laughs> your accountant uh, GM thinks that's an awful lot of fun. Players aren't going to stay for very long. Um, but the, uh, so the same, it's the same with puzzles. If you know your players dislike puzzles, don't design them in your adventures. And if you've got a published adventure, I know in ours, we spend a lot of time dropping in a side percent. Look, if your players hate puzzles, mm -hmm. do this instead, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, my, my most memorable experience with a puzzle was I had this, the players were going through this dungeon and there was this room with a bunch of skeletons, like sort of swarming them from all over. And there was a door that they had to get through. And so to unlock the door, they had to do a puzzle. Right? So I put it there for the rogue, to give the rogue something to do because rogues are lousy against undead, right? Like sneak attack doesn't work on them. So let's give the rogue like this really cool puzzle that she has to figure out while everybody else is fighting off the undead. Except I thought, well, I don't want to make it too, I don't, I don't know what to do for the puzzle. So I used a Sudoku, right, as a puzzle. Well, little did I know that my rogue does like five Sudokus every day before breakfast. <laughs> so she literally did it in like 30 seconds. Like I was watching her, she did 30 seconds. Well, so much for that thing, right? Know your players. Yeah. <laughs> right? Know your players. At the same time, I gave this puzzle to my Starfinder group that I've been playing, running for the last year and a half. And I gave him this cool puzzle. And I, I, I thought this might be too easy because if he just Googles it, it'll come up like that. And he refused to Google it. And he would never have solved it if another player hadn't done it for him, <laughs> right? And he actually felt really bad about it because he was like, he, he got kind of, kind of resentful that someone else had to solve his puzzle for him, right? Uh, have alternate paths. Don't depend on the puzzle. Uh, if the puzzle becomes a roadblock or you need the puzzle to be your source of tension, you are setting yourself up for disappointment. I mean, I, we all love them, but I think that we love them more than players love them, frankly. Oh, me. Already? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of speak for some people at least. Um, can everyone hear me, of course? Um, say like, I mean, like, say like you do have like a puzzle or you want them to, you have a dungeon where you want them to pursue it in a different way other than combat. Yeah. How do you protect that against the dreaded murder hobos? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always the concept of overwhelming force. The idea that you just have, the idea that if you're going in and you're attacking everything, there's just going to be so many things that converge on you. Um, there can also be situations where um, their PCs may not have the authority to be going in and attacking everything that's in there. Like maybe they're going in and they're going after some specific criminal that's in this area, but if they're just going to attack everyone, some of the people here are just innocent bystanders and the guards sure aren't gonna be happy about that. And, uh, but I guess when it comes down to it, if you have a group of players and what they wanna do all day is they wanna fight things and they don't wanna do that other stuff, <laughs> then 
there's nothing you can you can you can present other opportunities but ultimately you can't make your players enjoy different parts of the game than they enjoy uh I just recently finished developing an adventure called Mutiny uh, in, at Blooming Port. It's published by Canigo uh, Games, and Jim Seals is the author. But he set up all these scenarios where the players encounter all these various NPCs, and, and Jim doesn't want you to fight through everything. He wants to create opportunities for social and, and that kind of problem solving. So one of his solutions was what you were talking about, where there's this character, this NPC, and she's like collecting apples from this magical apple grove, right? And the players meet her. And if they try to draw swords on her, well, she's actually an ancient gold dragon in disguise. Right? <laughs> so when they draw swords on her, she just turns into a gold dragon and burns them to death. Right? Don't do that. But, but alternate, the other option was, was that they encounter these pirates. And these pirates, like when the players encounter the pirates, the, the pirates are literally in the middle of a drinking game. And they're all at the benches with all this, you know, and they sort of turn and like, who are you? And do you want to drink? Right? And, you know, pirates, drinking game, like that sounds fun, right? So you can, you can use overwhelming force, but if you present them with a non-combat situation with fun stuff, they might, you, they might engage. Now, they might still draw swords on the pirate game. Okay, like we've got to play that out because like you say, you can't, you can't make them. This is the beauty and the curse of role-playing games, right? Is that it's not a novel. We don't control the characters. We, 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 all we can do is offer. And if they bite the hand, well, okay, that's, that's the game you want to play, right? But, uh, but there are a lot of ways. Attempt, so give them some carrots, but also you know, keep the stick handy, right? To, uh, to riff off of that gold dragon example a little <laughs> yeah. bit, if you're presenting someone who's very powerful that they really shouldn't antagonize, there's always the, you know, I'm not necessarily going to incinerate all of right. you guys, but I'm going to give you a warning. <laughs> That yeah. this is not what you want to be doing right yeah, now. Yeah, and that's good if you have a recurring group where you can actually tell them, like, okay, I could have killed all of you. Don't do that. And the next game, next adventure, when this happens again, they're like, hey, remember that gold dragon? <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, I kind of have two questions. I hope that's okay. Um, one of which is regarding, like, plot hooks. Like, uh, what do you guys find to be, like, good ways when you're writing a dungeon design to get your adventurers interested in the dungeon you're uh, designing? I mean, yeah, yeah. You, we've all done it. We built a dungeon, and adventurers are like, oh, yeah, hack and slash, and poop, murder, murder hobo through it. Uh, and the second one is the culmination of that. How do you make engaging and interesting boss fights? Like, like, when you get to the end, and it is that big, strong dude, how do you make it so it's just not repeatedly just throwing your blade at him type deal? Yes. Like, how do you make that, like, a dynamic, yeah. engaging experience? Yeah. Good Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'll ask the, the I'll answer the second question first. Um, there there are there are a lot of different ways to make the players engaged in a particular fight that you want to showcase. I mean, the first thing to do is to think about think about what you're designing sort of as a movie. And not only is this going to be the the climax of the movie, but it's also going to be there are going to be scenes from this in the trailer for the movie. Right? It's got to it's just got to look cool. One of the ways that it's going to look cool is to have um, an environment that is that is engaging, yep. and whether that environment is engaging because the villain knows how to use it against the heroes, or the heroes can figure out how to use it against the mm -hmm. the villain, e either is good. Both is best mm -hmm. um, to have a couple of different ways the environment can be used. Um, a ton of minions is awesome. Um, not only minions that you come into. Um, You've, you've gone through to get to the boss, but the boss is surrounded by minions that otherwise are particularly weak against the characters. What that is, it sets up something that they have to deal with, but something that they have to deal with that they can very competently overcome. 
Um, so that allows, for example, somebody that's got the ability to you know char charm a whole bunch of people. Right? My charm spell is going to be no good against the the dragon, right? But I know my charm is going to take out several of the little kobolds that work for the dragon. That lets the players feel like they're making progress towards something, which is part of the goal of making it seem like a challenge, mm -hmm. without making it seem like kind of a, a stone wall that you have to kind of throw yourself up against until something sticks. Um, so in, environment and minion are my two my yeah. two things for that. And what what that that goes sort of into a broader idea of choice. That there's more that the players can do in the encounter than all rush up to the boss and deal them damage until they're down, or throw a saber die spell and then he fails the spell and then it's like, what do you do now? So there's other things to fight. There's other things to interact with on the battle map. Do you want to do you want to go in the back way? Do you want to try to get the high ground on the boss? Is there other things that you can that you can manipulate and interact with? It once once if you have a big boss fight. Where are you? Who's the guy that asked the question? Oh, thank you. If you have a big boss fight, first thing is, no, no matter how many clever strategies you use, there will always be at least one player who will do everything possible to charge the boss and attack them, no matter what you do. If they kill the boss early, unless he's got a contingency raised dead, kill all the minions or have them all run away. Like, don't try to keep the fight going where they fight all the rest of because the climax is over. Your dungeon is over. We, <laughs> we, you may have an hour left of gameplay, but the dungeon for the players is over. So let it be over, right? Don't try and nurse it along. Although, that being said, if they do kill him on the first round, maybe he does have a contingency race day. <laughs> uh, the second thing um, that I wanted to bring up is, is this idea of plot hooks. That's your first question. Um, work with your players on this. Ask your players what motivates your character, right? I say this because I had a really bad experience. <laughs> I was running this time travel campaign set in the Victorian period, and the players um, were contacted by various time travelers from the future uh, who, who gave them the mission to prevent World War I and World War II and the Holocaust. Like, we, this is what's happening. Stop this from happening. In the second session, the players told me, we don't feel like we have any motivation for this adventure. <laughs> <laughs> You're stopping the Holocaust. What do I have to do? <laughs> Talk to the players. Find out what motivates them, and then pander to them shamelessly. Right? For, and it's going to be different. So, once again, I'm going out of my company here, right? But... Remember the old um, the, the, uh, Lost Mind of Fandelver, the basic adventure and the, the basic set? Um, it's got all these different plot hooks for all the different backgrounds. Like every background has its own plot hook, right? And you're the folk hero or you're the merchant or you're the soldier or whatever. And one of those plot hooks is just money. Like there's just people who are willing to pay. And another one is like, you know, they're telling stories about you in this town right? or, or whatever. And so customize your plot hooks. Ask your players what motivates them, and then try to get one player to maybe help you out and invite the others along. Because players may not have, the player characters may not have a reason to go, but if their friend asks them to go, they'll go. That's a reason. That's, that's, that's sometimes the best reason, yeah. right? There are plenty of characters, plenty of players who are happy to have their character's motivation be, oh, I'm with this guy. Yeah, yeah. 
It doesn't hurt to uh, it doesn't hurt to have NPCs play to their egos too. The whole the whole stereotypical, you know, the guard captain comes up to you and she says, "Please, you are the only ones who can help. Everyone yeah. else is we're the only ship occupied." Yeah, yeah you're, <laughs> yes. We have heard of your great heroics and your exploits. Hope that I can count on you here. I've no one else to turn to, etc. Yeah, that works great in a, long, a longer campaign because you can play off things that have happened in the campaign yeah. before and make. Make them feel like, oh yeah, we, maybe we are the we are the people that defeated the ogre bandit of such and such, and you know maybe we are up for this. Oh, we have a question from Twitch from the Real Potus ninety eight. Besides cavens, what would be some methods to dissuade parties from running back to town to recharge and get their resources back? Um, timers. Uh, mm -hmm. e either you know that the the main villain is going to be. Doing a, yeah, they've got a ritual that's going to take a certain amount of time, um, especially if you've got town that's far away. That's that's going to be a problem. Um, if you know that they've taken hostages, that they're going to you know, start killing mm -hmm. hostages after a certain amount of time. Oh, we certainly can't wait. We we have to keep going. That's that's also a way. In a, in addition to keeping players from doing something longer, like going back to town. That also helps build the tension of well, we need to do just just one more, just one more, just one. Yeah, okay, we need. Oh, yeah, we're gonna have to take ten minutes to rest and you know recover our focus powers or treat wounds and second edition parlance. But uh, we've got or get our stamina back. They, uh, but if they want to push even faster to delay that, then you're you're building a real sense of urgency there. How do you deal with? dungeon bleed like for instance your players use thunder wave in one room and the next room over has a bunch of enemies and this is a fortress there's going to be an alarm and now just everything is coming up them all at once and i had this problem with where in yeah. one game where that happened and then they immediately went towards the boss and ignore the entire rest of the dungeon because they kill everything else in the dungeon because it all went to them so what are your thoughts on well i mean there are different priorities for example if you have a fortress um, there's always the possibility if you're guarding a fortress that this big obvious group that's got lightning in the front isn't the only group that's in there, right? They have their other priorities that they need to protect. So that would involve keeping their boss safe. That would involve protecting the treasures that they have. If they have hostages, making sure that no one's trying to spring those out. So you can have them cluster more around some of those focal points. So then sure, you have that front vanguard that goes out to attack the PCs, but they also have their other priorities as well. Uh and sometimes you can actually embrace this. Um, some of the best in, uh, sessions I've had running uh, dungeons lately, the players have managed to activate practically every encounter on the map simultaneously. <laughs> and and you, the trick is, is to have each door open with another swarm of goblins attack them, like one round or two rounds separate from each other. Right, because although yes, you've alerted the entire tower, every tower is not one door away, right? And so, right as the players think we've won, or right as they feel like they're starting to get a handle on the mobs, um, another door opens and five more goblins charge in, and the players are like no, yeah. and and every time you get to the top of the encounter of the, of the initiative chart, they wait for you to say, and another door opens and more goblins rush in, <clears throat> and, and and so. Embrace it. See if you can get it to work, because it can be really memorable. But in addition, to get back to how to stop this from happening, you've got to ha you might have ways in, in which your dungeon is compartmentalized. Now, the archetypal way to do this is with levels. So 
don't put everything on one level so that if they do alert everything, where, who's the person that asked the question? Sorry, oh yeah. If they do put every, if you, if, if you put everything on one level, then one thunder wave can, can alert everybody. But if you split it up so that it's on different floors, they can only alert the people that are on that floor, right? Um, and there's a lot of ways to do this. That's just sort of the classic way of doing it. Whatever, whatever solution you're going to have, it's sometimes effective to communicate it to your players. If mm. whoever's saying you've got to go assault the evil keep filled with hobgoblins is able to tell them, you know, somebody else tried with an attempt to pull everybody to, you know, pull all the forces together, but it didn't work because these hobgoblins are so well trained that they stay at their posts, assuming that the initial attack is a distraction. Then the players get thinking, oh, we can we can use that to our advantage, right? And then they're not going to not only. Not only are the dungeon denizens not going to do what you don't want them to do, but the players know that and can build their tactics off of it in a way that results in them having discrete fights, discrete manageable fights. And, and when the players make a decision and they make a strategy that actually works in the game, they feel like champions. Like they really, they really do. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're winning the dungeon. And that's, you know, that's good. Yeah. And uh, Jason, before you talked about factions, and this is another yeah. place where factions can very much oh, come that's into true. play. Yes. If you have um, if you have two factions that don't necessarily get along, members of the other faction might want to wait and see if the first faction can be the one to take the casualties yeah. and handle the danger before they get their hands dirty. And this doesn't all have to be like you know orcs versus kobolds either. It can totally be within one kind of hegemonic group. Like it might be the city guard versus the musketeers. Like well. You know, these, these people have been rivals for decades, and the city guard is out front, and we're going to let them fight the adventurers for a while, and then maybe we'll come in. But we don't have to rush in right yeah. away. The city guard have always said they had it handled. They That's don't right. need us. Yeah, well, then I'm sure yeah. that, you know, that when they, when they, if they can either handle it themselves or when we come in to save them, they can apologize yeah, and, for not respecting us. And while we wait, this tea is really great, too. You know, like, don't just sit back and yeah. take a rest. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you all very much. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Param here, and welcome back. This is our Gen Con 2019 coverage. And, and uh, thank you so much for coming. Also, uh, no direction fans, we just recently had you on one of our better episodes in a long time, so it's great to have you. That was a lot of fun, going through character creation mm -hmm. and how that works for the Pathfinder Society as well. And Pathfinder Society is infamous for some dungeons. I mean, Bone Key, and oh my gosh. What are some of your favorite dungeons in the society? Some of my favorite society dungeons. Well, you, met, you mentioned Bone Keep in terms of that completely grinding oh, yeah, killer yeah. dungeon and things like that. We have a lot of, um, it, there, there are so many going on though. And one of the things that I like to see is um, having a lot of different approaches, the way that you go about things. Because we have, um, I'm, I'm trying to think, um, actually, if I, can, if I can talk about one that's not society for a sure, moment, sure, it's sure. just like one of my favorite dungeons I've yeah, ever yeah, seen in great. a Paizo product, uh -huh. is um, Shattered Star, I think, is kind of the mm -hmm. pinnacle of what I've seen in terms of dungeon design, mm -hmm. where you have these multi-level dungeons with all sorts of different factions, all sorts of different things going on. Mm -hmm. You've got these secret, you've got these doorways, these keys that you've got to open, these things that really unlock. So you can really have this adventure that is, it's fundamentally, most of these parts are dungeon crawls. But there is really something for everyone, and I think that's something to aspire to which, in, uh, in long-term dungeon design. Right. Now, I know that Paz has always been a fan of 
some of these really complex. I'm, I'm remembering uh, from the very beginning, right, the Rune Lords book five having that like redonkulously epic an absolutely crazy dungeon and I get and, and I imagine was one of the inspirations to have the Shattered Star Super Dungeon in there. Oh yeah, totally. And then of course you all did the Emerald Spire Super Dungeon, which is a, is a dungeon about this thick and yeah. and then a map pack this thick which I'm so glad you all made because I some of those dungeons including Shattered Star, drawing that thing out with mm -hmm. the Sharpie, not the best I'm not the best artist for that now, if there is one bit of advice you didn't get to cover on the panel that you want our audience out here to know about spicing up a dungeon, what would it be? Okay, so I briefly mentioned the idea of making sure that you have something that every player can mm -hmm. do. So that comes to how do you want to approach this? Are there ways that you can use skills to so. bypass encounters and things like that? Just and really, particularly skill. if you're playing... Um, if you're designing for second edition with a three action economy, there's a lot more potential okay. to have the skills meaning things in combat as well. So you can have, for example, a complex uh, hazard going off at the same time as the PCs are fighting an encounter with the monster. Maybe the, the room show, is doing something strange and they have to interact well, with that. Going. Maybe the map itself is dynamic. Maybe there's moving platforms and oh, things gosh. like that. Maybe you have, uh, yeah, maybe you have these multi-phase encounters like yes. that. Like, like Jason was jobs. talking about. I'd say that when <laughs> know, uh, when coming up with encounter complexity, it's, it's good to manage the teasing of both the difficulty and the complexity year. of encounters so that you have some really showpiece ones. And the boss encounter is a great place for that, but that you also have easier ones scattered throughout so that the PCs get to have times where they feel like the big darn heroes who have everything under control and times when they're thinking like, oh gosh, this is really tough, are we going to need to retreat? And those weaker encounters can also give them a little bit of a chance to look around a little bit and maybe they can maybe they can convince some of those people in the weaker encounters like i was saying with the morale conditions not everyone's going to fight to the death those can be great times to let the pcs feel safe enough that they can at least consider taking hostages without thinking that they're going to die if that person comes back and fights them again <laughs> i know it's like it is it, it, it is amazing how quickly a bunch of pious good aligned characters become completely ruthless oh my goodness yeah and it, it's it can be funny to have NPCs point out when PCs are behaving in that kind of way. It's like, please, please, I have a family. <laughs> you know, like, what are, what are you doing here? Yeah, it's, it, that, that happens too when the PCs walk into the town and they've got their swords swinging and things like that. Just having NPCs respond to the PCs entering in the way that they do with with casting their spells and most people can't identify spells and slinging their swords and if those people that they're finding in the dungeon aren't hostile then having them respond to that in a natural way well i hope that you're going to have some more fun here at jenton will we see you on any new panels uh yes i'm going to be on the diversity panel oh yes the tomorrow one the evening end. yes yeah. mm -hmm. and i'm going to be on a uh character creation panel for second edition mm -hmm. on saturday and I'm going to be on the panel for the Pathfinder Adventure card game on Sunday. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. We will be back with the next panel coming up in just a moment. And that was part of No Direction's 2019 Gen Con seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. If you'd like to find more great content like this, go to nodirectionpodcast.com. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making content like this possible. If you'd like to support the network and see that future content is created, you can do so at patreon.com slash nodirection, or click on the Patreon link at nodirectionpodcast.com. <laughs>